there's a radical misconception in Startupville, which is if you're building a company, it's the only thing you eat and breathe and sleep and think about and pay attention to and prioritize. And it's bullshit because I promise if you do that and you allow your relationships to go away and you're not figuring out how do I develop the deepest and most connected and meaningful relationships possible with the people that I love, nothing else actually matters. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. On today's episode, I speak with Tyler Hall, a serial entrepreneur and founder of Drivably, a resource inventory platform for car dealers. Tyler sold his business to a highly strategic public company, ACV, which was the leading digital automotive marketplace for car dealers. This exit was a home run for Tyler and his team, but his stories and advice about getting this deal done are priceless. In our conversation, Tyler and I not only talk about how he learned about building and selling companies from some of the top Silicon Valley entrepreneurs of our time, but Tyler also shares very private and painful moments along the way that changed his personal and professional life forever. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tyler Hall. Hello, everyone. I'd like to take a minute to highlight this week's sponsor, Doran Mayhew, a top 60 national accounting, tax, and M&A advisory firm who we frequently recommend to conduct sell-side Q of E or quality of earnings for our clients. In 2023, there are a lot of things changing in the world of M&A, economic headwinds, failed banks, and big bankruptcies. But with the credibility of a sell-side Q of E from a top firm like Dorn Mayhew, more buyers will look at your deal, buyer diligence will run faster, and your investment banker will be armed with clean financial data to be able to address any buyer questions with well-conceived responses. What this really means is you're more likely to maximize your exit. Dorn Mayhew is one of Forbes' best tax and accounting firms in the United States. Check out their quality of earnings offerings and everything else they can help you with at Doran.com. That's D-O-E-R-E-N.com. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. Tyler, thank you for being here. I really appreciate you taking time out of what is a busy schedule. You're you know, on the board of so many companies. You're helping out so many founders. You've got a podcast. But I was so excited to get into your story. I feel like I have a, a kinship with you because you've done multiple companies and now you've transitioned out of that to truly helping our fellow founders. And really, that's where my partner and I find ourselves today. So you know, when we had the opportunity to get you in this time slot, I had no problem bumping Mark Cuban. So thank you for being here. <laughs> yeah, Mark's a slouch. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I I really want to get into Drivably, right? Because I think there's a lot of lessons from that M&A experience. You built up this amazing company, but maybe you could take us back. You know, you've been an entrepreneur before that, and you've worked with companies that have exited before. So maybe why don't we start where you think is most comfortable to kind of give our audience some background on you? Yeah, happy to. So I'm 21 years old. I'm going to school in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm broke as a joke, newly engaged, you know, school full time, work full time, and saved up enough money to buy my first vehicle, right? So I wasn't like one of these sort of super fortunate kids. Like I I saved up some money, 21, buy this car. Realized I got a great deal on this car. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to make a buck. So I listed this vehicle and I sold it and I made a thousand bucks and didn't think a whole lot of it. Still need a car, went out, bought another car. I'm at work the next day, realized I got another pretty good deal. So I turn around and I sell that one. I make $2,000. And at this point, Todd, I'm pretty smart, right? I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to buy some more. I'm going to see if I can keep doing this. So over the next 90 days, I bought and sold about 20 cars and I walk into the DMV this one day and this, this nice old lady's like, Hey Tyler, like we're now on a first name basis, right? Sure. sure. She's like, do you have a dealer license that you forgot to <laughs> leave with us? You know? And I'm like, no, what, what is that? She's like, do you have a broker? Are you a wholesaler? Like, wh- who are you? <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. no, I'm just a college kid, like hustling, making money. And she's like, 
yeah, you, you, you can't do that. That's, that's illegal. Right. And I'm like, Whoa, like, so all of a sudden here I am thinking I'm slick and I have this nice old lady telling me like, you're breaking the law. And so I go, you know, this time Todd, I'm like rich. I have like all this money. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, do, do I need to pay a fine or something? And I'm thinking I'm slick. Right. And she's like, no, actually this is a class B misdemeanor. I'm supposed to report you to the police. Like you're an adult, you'll go to jail. And I'm like, Whoa. Right. So like, I I remember like breaking down in the DMV, like, please don't do that. Please don't throw me in jail. Right. And so I get a slap on the wrist. She says, here's a packet to apply to become a car dealer. And so I don't, I, I look at this packet, I go, you know, that's not me. I'm a full-time student. I can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. And to make a long story short, I figured out a loophole, which was if I could convince a car dealer to let me use his license, I could keep flipping cars, but now I had to charge sales tax. So, you know, I, I ended up buying and selling about 200 cars going through school. I'm a junior in college. I realized college is not for me. I drop out of college and I joined a startup. My brother, you know, I, I had learned a lot about the auto space. I'd learned that there was a bunch of problems I wanted to solve using technology. And my brother gave me some of the best advice possible, which was, Hey, instead of like going and pursuing you know, sort of traditional education, like go join a startup and go learn inside of a company from a CEO that you want to become. Right. So there was a guy in Utah at the time named Josh James, who had founded a company called Omniture that was acquired by Adobe for almost $2 billion. And it's the biggest exit in Utah history. And my brother knew him and he said, Hey, go work for Josh. So I, I joined Josh's second company called Domo was early there. We raised almost a billion dollars of venture capital. I was there three and a half years. We grew from about 30 people to almost a thousand people in the time I was there. So this crazy, crazy rapid growth. Learned a ton, left there, went to another company that was backed by Sequoia. We had raised about a hundred million of this company called Hireview and was early there. We ended up selling that company for a half a billion dollars. And so here I am, this young guy and catch these two waves with these two companies. And truly Todd, like I learned over seven years, this wasn't like one year, two year, three, this was seven years. I learned from some of the best entrepreneurs in sort of startup bill and learn how to build a company. So January, 2018, I left the, you know, startup world to start my own thing. So Oh, what a great beginning. So I I don't know if we have time for it on this podcast, but I started very similarly. I found a car dealer in Massachusetts that was willing to give me a sub license. And so I would go to the auctions and I would buy cars and sell them to friends. And then I started listing them and yeah, realizing that sales tax was the the hardest part of actually making Mm -hmm. money for me in doing that. Yeah, that was a really fun experience and similar. What an opportunity to get to learn kind of entrepreneurship through guys like that, that you're getting to see the building of the company, the fundraising of the company, getting the product market fit, the unit economics, right? And scale, right? That's kind of rare air. So I'm sure you learned a ton there. And, but you obviously had built in some confidence. Sounds like you had uh, entrepreneurship in your blood already. So in 2018, you take the leap. But actually, before that, did you see any of the MA process with those two? particular deals that you were in or two companies you were working for? Was there like a moment where you knew, oh, this company is being sold, they have to tell us? Any insight? Because I think a lot of our founders, right, are looking to sell a business someday, but a lot of people listening are also employees at companies that could get sold someday. So any kind of insight from your seat in those two M&A transactions? Maybe the insight I'm going to share is not going to be popular or fun for some people to hear. Okay. But it's real. Domo, you know, they raised so much money, Todd, we raised $900 million of venture funding, which was at the time, the highest funded SaaS company in history. No company had raised this much venture capital before that. So do you know how to spend a billion dollars? Like it's pretty hard. So you have to like, you have to just spend it. So every meal was catered breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? We were hiring as fast as we could. You know, and I think there was some good quality control. I'm not saying we hired anybody and everybody, but like we grew like pretty irresponsibly, I would say at Domo to the point where the company at one point, our CEO was such a good fundraiser because he had this massive exit previously and every VC in the world wanted to back him. 
that he could have probably raised two or three billion. I remember having conversations with him saying, yeah, we have guys like Tiger and Viking and some of these massive growth funds that are willing to like do anything. And so the thing you have to be aware of when you're an employee is, yeah, you have stock in the company, but the higher the valuation goes, the earlier in the company, especially when you're not like a real business and there's not real economics, like you have to continue to grow into that valuation and you have to continue to like grow at the right pace and enough to get the next round higher. And when you IPO, it's got to, so ultimately I think the company at one point was valued at around 4 billion. And when we IPO would it was yeah. under a billion, right? So think of how that works for the economics of all the shareholders. It's not good. Okay. So as an employee, you, you have to like track that stuff. You can't lose sight of, oh, this is just, look at all this hype and everybody loves us and we're raising all this money and customers. And all. it's like, yeah, but you have to know where you are. You fit in the sort of preference of how a liquidity event would work. So ask questions, be curious, talk to the CFO, talk to the CEO, whoever's willing to like share that intel with you. I think it's important because last thing you want to do is get strung along thinking you're going to have some significant event and then when there's a liquidation event, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm actually like bottom of the totem pole. We had a down round and I might not, I might not get anything. Right. So I think that's probably the biggest learning. That is, I mean, it's so poignant. We we're tending to talk to the founders themselves, right? The ones that own the majority of the equity and the conversations we have with them is, yeah, you may have an opportunity to raise a bunch of money, right? And you're going to take dilution to do that. And now you're going to have to grow this company five times and have an exit to you know very few buyers in the billion dollar range or you have to go public to get the same ROI that you could potentially get today so we have that conversation but what you're bringing to the table you know it's not just you it's everybody that is in that option pool that you know is bringing you to the promised land and they deserve something so i really appreciate you bringing that up because i see a lot of money thrown at these companies in later stages and you might see a valuation number that is through the roof, but you have to understand that that late stage investor mm -hmm. has also de-risked those dollars in a way that isn't just kind of dilution $1 to $1. It, it, those are interesting structures that are not necessarily benefiting you know, the employees in an option pool. So thank you for sharing that. Let's jump into to the company drivably, right? So You've got your idea in hand. You've, you've got some great experience behind you. You've seen the full life cycle from amazing entrepreneurs. So you must have a ton of confidence. Did you go out and kind of fundraise for, for Drivably? The interesting thing that I did was the idea that I had was more on the market. So the idea was this market's behind. There's a hundred things we could probably solve. I don't know which one we're going to choose, but I'm so bullish on the market that I'm going to go all in. Okay. So what I did was when I left higher view, I now had like some funds, like enough to like go and start my next thing and have a nice cushion for a couple of years. Right. And this is always like for aspiring founders, this tends to be the biggest like thing that's either going to allow you to do your next company or stop you, which is, do you have a little bit of a nest egg where you can be comfortable eating shit, making no money for a year, two years, three years. And, mm -hmm. and that's important. If you want to do it, like, gotta, you've got to like sacrifice up front, build that nest egg a little bit, or it's going to be really, really painful when you go to start your company. So, you know, so I, I got myself into that position and what we did was instead of like just building products and relying on dealers to give us feedback, we just became our own dealer. So I started out by building a dealership first Yep. And then we incubated. We, I had like 30 ideas and I took those ideas and I crowdsourced them against a bunch of people that know the space really well and dealers and potential customers. And I said, which of these would be the most interesting? And pretty quickly, within about a week, we had narrowed that list down to two things. And those two things were if we could help car dealerships understand what cars to buy, where to buy them from and how much money to pay for used vehicles to maximize profit margin. We think that they would pay for that. And secondly, if we could help car dealerships acquire consumer vehicles as a source of sustainable supply at scale, we also mm. think that they would use that because today they can't do that. They're relying on trade-ins and people walking in their door. So mm -hmm. 
we ultimately settled on those. We incubated those two products inside of our dealership. I was prepared to run this dealership for two or three years until we got to a place where we felt like we had some semblance of product market fit. And after a year, like we had some conviction and so sold the car dealership one year later, that was actually a good business too, which was great. Hmm. And then hmm. January of 2019, we spun out drivably and I went all in on that. And so we went out, I pitched about 55 VCs before I got my first yes. And that first yes, by the way, I was two weeks away from being totally out of money. And we got that first yes, 750,000. And then right on the back of that, you know, that signal that was sent, we got a couple of more yeses. And so we raised almost $3 million in sort of a pre-seed or seed round. And then we were off to the races. That's awesome. I want to step back because you got just a ton here that is so valuable. I think that comment around founders needing to have a little bit of cushion, a nest egg, you got to be able to live 18 months, no salary or more. And, you know, I was one of our last guests, I was talking to him about that. And, you know, as a serial entrepreneur myself, I don't even think about that. I have to do that. It is part of the job. You are going to suffer financially mm -hmm. and you've got to get a little bit of financial support and emotional support from your community, your family to be able to go do this. So your advice of having setting aside dollars and funding you, your, you personally for the next couple of years, that's really, really important because these things take time to spin up. I love that. I love businesses that start with a customer in hand and you manufactured your own customer by building the dealer. So you had the proof point, right? You could go and say, this is the case study. This is why it works. And then pressure testing a bunch of ideas with other dealers to understand which are the ones that are, people are going to gravitate to. It all sounds like genius. So when you leave, you just know a lot that other people don't know. You know what to build. And I can see venture capitalists saying he knows where the market's going, right? He has un fair advantage in the insight here. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a fantastic startup story. All right. So you got uh, 3 million bucks in the bank and it, how many people are on the ride with you right now? Way too many. We had about 16 people at this time in the company. We got super top heavy. Our very first hire was a, like a CTO. So this is like I founded the company. I brought a co-founder in about a year in named Andrew. And then the very first person we hired was a CTO. And, you know, we went back and forth on, do we hire a CTO? Do we hire these people in house or do we outsource this to a development partner? We went back and forth, back and forth. We decided we're going to do it in house. We got super top heavy, hired six or seven engineers, which you, you know what American engineers cost, right? And when you're not making any money, the burn got really high, really fast. And we started building product. One of my biggest mistakes was my co-founder and I were too similar. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we were both business sales relationships heavy. And I should have brought in a technical co-founder. Okay. That would have been the right move. Okay. And Andrew, I love you. It worked. We're great. Right. And <laughs> he knows that we both talk about this, like yeah. on our next one, like one of the biggest, you know, mistakes that we made was just, was just pairing up together brought in the CTO, spent nine months building a product, neither of us being very technical. And so we couldn't really understand like, are we making good progress? Is this working? Like, and nine months later, we had blown through the majority of our capital and we had nothing mm -hmm. to show for it. Yeah. We had no customers. We had no product. We had nothing. We were running out of money. And so I had to go back to the well, back to my investors and say, look, I know we just spent all your money. I know we have nothing to show for it, but I've learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And I promise we're going to do things differently the next time around. And they believe that. And so we basically fired our entire engineering staff, mm -hmm. everybody, mm -hmm. CTO, the whole team. We started over with an outsourced agency. Mm -hmm. And within three months, we had a product that we were selling and taking to market. So now we're going into 2020. And... The business is actually doing well. Like we're growing 20% a month for three, four, five consecutive months. Wow. And we go to this massive national conference called NADA and we have this bang out NADA and we're, we signed like a hundred customers and then COVID happens and our whole business basically goes to zero. All of our customers cancel. Mm -hmm. And 
it wasn't clear what COVID was actually going to be, right? Like, is this a year, two years, five years? Like dealerships are not essential businesses. They're shut down. And many of them went out of business fast. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know what? Like I cannot live with myself if I let the company die because of a global pandemic. If it was lack of execution or something, fine. Right. But this is not going to be the thing to kill us. So at this point, I'm like 15 people. Again, I have to fire everybody. We go back down to four people. And I say that very, I don't say that lightly. It's, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. These people become family. I mean, it's, you're convincing them to come and pursue this dream and they're fully on board. And I have to call 70% of our team and, and get rid of them. Right. So yeah. Can I let me jump in there because I think our fellow founders really understand that position and it's one thing to say, you know, oh it's that was the worst thing or the most painful thing. You know, I've had to lay off 25 people in a business at one time and that was excruciating and you know you mm-hmm. have to do it for the business and just like you said those people are there because you sold them on a bill of goods that this we were going to take them to the promised land and mistakes are made. And now you're, you're fighting for survival and some people are not going to come along for the ride. It is gut wrenching. I still think of those moments today. Um, entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart and firing people is awful. So, uh, you know, again, appreciate you mentioning that. I think just the other thing, this isn't really like a podcast for startup advice, but you know, I see and I've done and I and my friends have gone through trying to build the product that is the best product in the world out of the gates uh, in software, I think is a real mistake. And we, we've all made it. And like you did the second yeah. time around, going to an agency, getting that minimum viable product, get something out in the market that you can sell. I've got a really good friend that says revenue <laughs> solves a lot of problems. And I think if as an experienced entrepreneur, I know that every three years I have to replatform anyway, right? So if you can create mm-hmm. viable economics, even with a product that you're not incredibly proud of, you're going to have to redo that soon. And you're going to do that every three years. There are going to be new iterations and you'll get more and more professional, you know, just kind of my personal advice to founders on that. So thank you again. It's, it's a, it's a great story. So now you've, you've kind of right-sized the company, you've got revenue coming in, the product is working and you know, where do you go from there? Well, it was working. COVID happens. Business goes to zero. We fire the whole staff, right? So like, this is the darkest moment of my entire career. My entire career is the moment that literally in two days, our entire customer base left us. They all canceled. And so, you know, after having consecutive months of momentum, we're feeling good and and then all of a sudden COVID's there, dealers are shut down, customers cancel, fire the whole staff. And a really, really dark time for me. And I remember, you know, we were, by the way, we were basically out of money at this point. There was an acquisition that it would have really been an aqua hire at the time that we were pursuing. And we were close to entering an LOI. And then when COVID happened, the buyer pulled out and we were basically out of money. And so the good thing was I was in conversations with a couple of VCs to raise our next round and Porsche of all people stepped up and wrote a check in the middle of COVID. And it really provided us the clean air to be able to poke our heads up and say, okay, well, where do we go from here? How do we adjust? How do we pivot? And so, you know, at this moment we made a, a life or death decision, which was we're going to go acquire a company. We're going to totally pivot the business and, it's either going to work out exceptionally well, or we're going to go to zero and we're going to die. And the board was like, okay, cool. Like if that's what you want to do, let's, let's do it. So we acquired this company, which was called auto bios based in Canada. Mm-hmm. We integrated the two companies within like six weeks, super rapid integration. We start selling that product and pretty quickly, all of the sudden the tide turned and the automotive market all of a sudden was on fire because you had an all-time high, all-time in the history of automotive, high demand for vehicles and an all-time low supply of cars. And we were positioned right in the middle of that perfect storm, enabling dealerships to acquire inventory directly from consumers as a source of supply. And so we did this acquisition, 
the tide turned, all of a sudden our company's moving into terror. We're hiring as many people as we can, as fast as we can. And, you know, fast forward seven or eight months, now Q1 of 21. I actually get cocky at December 1st of 20. And I think I can go raise a series A 20 million before the holidays. Mm -hmm. And I take meetings for two weeks. So by, I said, my deadline's December 15th, we're going to accept an LOI. No LOI comes December 21st rolls around, still no LOI. Now we're going into the holidays and now I'm screwed. Right. And the holidays happen and these investors cooled off the new year turns. There's no positive signals. Next thing you know, we don't have that round pulled together. We have about six or 8 million softly committed. And at the same time, the market's still on a tear. It's still on fire. We have a couple of public companies, a couple of big companies approach us to acquire the entire business. And, you know, I'm feeling like I've been through the ringer. I've been on the roller coaster now a few years. I'm tired. I'm pretty depressed, even though things are going well in the company. And we say, you know what? Let's take advantage of this market timing and let's see what's out there. So we have a little bit of inbound interest. I don't engage a banker. I did what I call a ghost process. So I I pretended as if I was representing the deal myself as the CEO of the company. Yep. I had bankers and attorneys in my back pocket that were reviewing everything with me. And the advantage of doing that is when buyers believe there's not a banker involved, they will move a lot faster. They get a lot more sort of horny for the deal right? Because they don't have to go into a bake-off. But meanwhile, I pick up the phone, I call five or six other public companies, CEOs, guys I was friends with. I say, hey, we're thinking about selling the company. And we did this ghost process with five companies. And so what happens next is quite a lot of fun. Can I I talk a little bit about the ghost process, right? So what I've found is you might have some really good personal relationships. So people trust you and they say, Hey, Tyler Hall knows MA. He knows what is coming and this isn't a waste of time. But cold calling up potential buyers saying that you're for sale and without an investment banker for real buyers, that's kind of a sign of that is going to be a waste of my time. They have no experience selling. So I yeah, would just yeah. give the caveat that you know, you're calling on relationships, you're a known quantity and you have real experience doing that. Exactly right. And the phone call, by the way, Todd was, Hey, George, CEO of ACV public company. Here's where we're at. We're either going to go raise a big series A and we're going to compete with you, or we're going to sell the company. Do you want to have a look? I have a data room prepared. I can send it over to you. Do you want to have a look? And it was basically like, Hey, I'm not going to run a process. I'll let you look at this only exclusively. And I replicated that call four or five times. Sure. Okay. And, and so I let a couple of companies under the covers and basically, you know, these guys, I can't believe he's given us access to the data. Like we didn't, we didn't care. It was like, let's get some momentum here. So by within three months, we had term sheets from three of the five that I called. Fantastic. And it was, the market was that hot. One of them was clearly not going to work, and the other two were really competitive. And it did become a bit of a bake-off between the two. And some feelings were hurt on the one that we didn't accept. But ultimately, uh, summer of 21, we signed an LOI with, with ACV auctions, and then we started the due diligence process. And through that negotiation and then into due diligence, did you not bring a banker in, but you had, what, M&A attorneys you had people that you could rely on to make sure documentation. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, yep. I love it. I love this story. And I, yeah, I would just say again, right, you had a lot of credibility in the market and relationships to be able to do that. But, you know, I don't know that you really felt forced into it with the fundraise not going your way. I think it's just such a smart thing. I think as we said mm-hmm. it earlier in the podcast, that having an understanding of how the market values you is a really smart thing to know at really every stage because you could be really surprised and say, hey, why would I give up more of my company? This is the time to exit. And it's not just, you know, a single number. It could be the right partner that is, uh, and the right partner with the right structure could create incredible wealth for you and, and your partners. So that it's great. It seems like, you know, you, you tested the waters and the waters were warm and you're ready to jump in and, and what an acquirer, right? This is a public company, right? They're the leaders, right? In a space that's 
very tangential to what you're doing, right? Do they feel like they were buying a direct competitor or that you're just kind of very additive to what they're doing, giving them another arrow in the quiver? Yeah, I think it was not direct competitor yet, but they were either going to acquire us or they were going to go build what we were doing. So, you know, ACV is a dealer to dealer online auction, the biggest one in the world. And so they help two dealers sell cars between each other. Their dealers were asking for consumer vehicles as a source of supply. We were one of the only companies in the world that were really good at acquiring consumer vehicles. So the tuck-in was like, was almost perfect. And really they were the first ones I called. They were the ones that were tracking us from the beginning. Like I wanted to do the deal with them and we felt very fortunate that it worked out the way that it did. Tyler, what I love about that story and that acquirer specifically for your business is for them, there's, yeah, there's some calculation to do on how much revenue you drive, what your EBITDA is. But the fact that they have a product that is demanded by their customer base, they can actually model mm-hmm. how much money are they going to make by rolling your company and your product offering into their existing customer base. Yeah. I mean, that's a strategic deal and those pay a premium. Yeah. So how did you end up negotiating price and share whatever you want? On that side of it, yeah. So we we end up basically structuring a deal that's fifty percent of the deal upfront cash. It's it's all still very confidential. The, there's still members of the team there that are working on an earnout, and then fifty percent of the deal as as an earnout, right? Which I think most listeners know what that is, but it's basically we set a target. It's time bound. If you hit that target or a percentage of that target, you get paid the rest of the deal or a percentage of the deal or above the deal, depending on sort of where you land by that date. So, so we have structured it that way. You know, one thing that I think most founders who have been through an exit will say is the day you sign your first LOI to sell your company is the best career day of your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the day after quickly becomes a hardcore reality check and yeah. just because there's an LOI signed does not mean there's a done deal. And I would guess that half of deals fall apart, maybe more, after signing an LOI. So it's nothing but a clear path to the finish line and actually funding and deal docs. You know, and for us, we we sign the LOI. We go into some deep due diligence. And I'm talking like we're basically putting the pressure on them to move quickly because we don't have a ton of cash in the bank and There's some external factors where I'm like, we need to get this done because this market is not going to be this way forever. And so we're putting the pressure on them. They're doing a great job moving quickly. And during due diligence, they uncover something that was seemingly catastrophic, which was one of the ways that we acquired customers was borderline illegal. Okay. (laughs) So to that again, (laughs) I guess I'm just a criminal. Like luckily I haven't gone to jail (laughs) for some of this stuff, but you know, one of the ways we did it was we'd go scrape third-party marketplaces and we would automate the texting or the engagement of those consumers, you know, and for a small private company, that's fine. Like you can get away with murder, but when you're a big public company, that's highly regulated and highly scrutinized, you can't. And so when they realized that a big portion of our customers were acquired in that way, they said, this is like 70% of the business is going to go away tomorrow if we acquire this company. So I remember sitting in my office and I get a text from the head of legal and M&A. And he's basically the right-hand man of the CEO of the company. And he says, he says, hey, can you chat? And this wasn't his normal style. <laughs> and I, I said, yeah, I, I can. And I was very nervous. And I remember answering the call and he says, Tyler, this is, he starts off by saying, this is the worst part of my job. And my heart sunk into my stomach. And I said, okay, what's going on? And he said, we uncovered some stuff during due diligence and it's a, it's a showstopper. Uh, we're not, we're not going to be able to move forward with the deal just very bluntly. And I'm like, whoa, like, what do you mean? What, what'd you uncover? And he unpacks it. And I, I, I remember being in shock. Like there's nothing I can say in this moment. He's made up his mind. And so mm-hmm. I said, okay, so where does this leave us? And I said, maybe the other company will still acquire us. Will you send me a a release from our exclusivity? And there was some negotiation there, which made me feel like, okay, maybe there's still something here. Mm. Yep, yep. I hang up the phone, my head drops to the floor, and I just remember feeling like, how am I going to tell my wife 
right? We've been now planning where, what are we going to do or travel the world? Yeah. What, what house, you know, all, all the things in life have been yeah. planned out. Yeah. Big mistake, by the way, don't do that to your wife and your family <laughs> until you have a deal. Okay. Yeah. And I walk out of the room and I'm literally in tears and I walk up to my wife and I say, honey, um, the, the deal's not going to happen. And stone cold, I shit you not. She looks me in the eyes and she says, so what? Yeah. I'm like, did you, you must've not heard what I said. The, the deal, the thing, the money, all that stuff. It's not going to happen. She goes, I heard you. So what? So that doesn't change the way that I feel about you or our kids feel about you. So, so what? And I remember just feeling like, okay, the pressure's, the pressure's off. She's right. She's right. We have each other. We have our family. And there was definitely a sense of relief. Not that it still wasn't very depressing. And to make a really long story short, okay, we were able to do some concessions on the deal. We were able to get it back. I could tell a very long story about that and how we made it happen and jumping on planes late at night and me going to them and them coming to us. And ultimately we got the deal back together and October 6th, we closed the transaction and, um, it was a good day. Fantastic. Fantastic. That was great. That was a great story. I think what I want to kind of harp on a little bit, right. Is that, you know, it's a little self-serving, but when you're going into a transaction and a data room is being built and your business is really being understood by an investment banking team, one of their jobs is really to figure out what are the red flags, what are buyers going to get scared about? And it's one of those moments where as entrepreneurs, we're, we're kind of natural salespeople, we're painting the rosy picture. I would just advise Every founder, when you're going to sell a business and you have advisors around you, you share everything because what you're doing is giving them the ability to be armed with the right responses or you're, they're going to make adjustments to make those red flags understandable by a buyer. Right. And when you said, you know, how you were acquiring customers, I was wondering, is that mean that your buyer is going to have to give up past revenue or give customers back? Or they're just not going to be able to grow at the pace that you were expecting on growing. But ultimately, you have the widget that their customers need. Right. And that's where I would have really kind of thought they got to get over how you grew mm -hmm. because it's your solution that they, mm -hmm. that they really need. But anyway, that, that advice from me really stands in that when you partner up with an investment bank, they're not somebody that you're selling anymore. You want them to know everything so they can protect you in that situation fully. and that you don't get to LOI and do all that due diligence without the buyer fully understanding that this is what they're getting. Their salesmanship for sure. Okay, yes, good. fully. And, and here's the deal, Todd, right? Like if you believe you can get a deal done, a real deal done by hiding something or sliding something, it's no, it's impossible no, because no, literally no. everything comes out in due diligence. Everything, everything, absolutely. Your weight, your height, your social security. I mean, everything is attached to this deal. So there's no hiding anything. So just, you, you got to realize that it's a, it's a great point. I think we can hit that over and over and over, but you know, the makeup of business owners and founders, right? We're, we're, you know, we're inherently a little bit private. We're very, very optimistic. So it's hard to make that switch, but you will inevitably have to do it in due diligence. Thank you. That is awesome. Okay. So you get the deal done and who's your first call, right? I know your first call when it fell apart is your wife and you get this unbelievable support that lets you breathe, which is fantastic. Remarkable, frankly. But now that the deal's done, who's, who's your first call? I think it was my wife again. I was, we were in their offices in New York. Uh, you know, I, I remember sort of actually signing on the dotted line and that feeling was mm -hmm. incredible. Called my wife and I remember her reaction was similar to her reaction when the deal fell apart, which was sort of like <laughs> very stoic, like awesome. Nice job. You know, not too high, not too low. Just like, great, cool. More money. Fine. But still love you. It's great whatever. <laughs> so it, it was a great response from her. And 
yeah, certainly a good, good feeling for us and the team and, you know, happy to kind of share the impending six months after the deal, the integration, and then, a you know, an experience that our family ended up going through. So, you know, we start integrating these companies. It's never very straightforward. You can have a perfect plan. Integrations are tough. They always are. Yes. And, um, you know, but I would say like, overall, we were, we were happy. All of the employees were happy. They retained everybody in the company, which is great. And, you know, three months after the acquisition, I, I remember being in Dallas and just a little preface to a story that I'm going to share. And I got to my hotel, it was Marriott. I got on the elevator as the doors are closing. I'm, I'm by myself. A guy sticks his arm in to, to open the door and he, he jumps on the elevator and I say, just simply, how are you today? And the man looked at me and he said, I'm, I'm not doing very well. He said, I had to bury my 26-year-old son today. And it's totally caught me off guard. I literally was speechless. And I just said, I'm so sorry. And he said, he was a good kid. He didn't have a drug problem. It was totally unexpected. It's been the hardest day of my life. And he said, I don't know who you are. I don't know if you have a family. But if you do cherish them, hold them very close because you never know when it's going to be their last day. And we're on the 10th floor. The doors open up. He's getting ready to get off. I remember just opening my arms to embrace this guy. And I gave him a hug and he left. And the moment the doors closed, I, again, got very emotional. I get up to my room. I call my wife, FaceTime her, and I'm crying. And she's like, what's going on? I go, I just had this experience on the elevator. And I'm so sorry that I haven't been there as much as I wanted to. And here I am in a hotel traveling right again. And she's like, you know, no, you're, you've been a great father and a great husband. And so this is this crazy moment, almost one of these out of body experiences that I wasn't sure if that man was real or if it was like an angel sent down from heaven to like wake me up. Right. Mm -hmm. And two months later, uh, again, I'm, I'm traveling, I'm in New York city. I'm with, um, the CEO of the parent company were getting ready to present at NASDAQ. It's a big day uh, for me in my career. One of the biggest days ever. And I wake up on a Tuesday morning. It's March 1st of last year, 2022. And I wake up uh, from a call from my mother-in-law and my mother-in-law and I are close, but we don't talk on the phone. It's not a thing that we do. Right. And Mm -hmm. let alone at 5 AM Arizona time. And I knew something was wrong. And I remember answering the phone. And instead of saying hello, I said, I said, what happened? And she said, she said, Brooklyn is, who's my wife. Her daughter is, is being rushed to the hospital in an ambulance. And we're not sure what's going on. And I said, you know, how bad is it? And she said, it's, it's bad. You should probably get home. And so here I am getting ready to do one of the biggest moments of my career. Um, and I'm as far away as you can possibly be from Arizona in the Northeast. And I text my assistant and say, I got to get out of New York city. So she orders me a car. I jump in the Uber, I head to the airport. And as I'm going to the airport, I'm getting updates from my father-in-law, who's the only one allowed to be in the hospital at the time because of COVID restrictions. Jeez. And the updates are, um, Hey, just arrived at the hospital. Hey, they just did an ultrasound. Hey, they found two liters of blood in her abdomen. Um, and at, by this point I'm standing at the airport at my gate and I get a text. That's a picture of the diagnosis that the doctor wrote on the whiteboard. And it said, uh, ruptured ectopic pregnancy. And I immediately go to Google to find out what this is. And I find out that in most cases, when this happens in the home, uh, it's lethal. And, you know, so I go from like definitely feeling uh, hopeful that maybe she got lightheaded. Maybe she forgot to eat the night before. Maybe she just passed out because of that to there's a there's a chance, a high probability my wife is going to die. And um, I'm a pretty even keel person. I I don't get too emotional about things. I don't get too, I know I've described many instances of me crying, but these are like all of the ones (laughs) in my life. Yeah. Um, This rocked me. I got really lightheaded. I wasn't 
I couldn't operate. I mean, I was in shock and I, I ended up getting on the plane. The next four hours, I get four updates, which are they rushed her in for an emergency surgery, still in surgery, still in surgery, still in surgery. And at this point in my life, we've delivered three babies and the doctor is in the room for about five minutes. Okay. When you deliver a baby generally. And I thought, man, she's been under the knife for four hours. And the last, last message that I got before the plane started descending from my father-in-law was something to the effect of, um, brace yourself. It's not looking like she's going to make it. And this was the message that the doctor had relayed to him moments, moments earlier. And so that moment I had, I was convinced she was actually dead. Um, but that they weren't sharing that information with me until I got to the hospital. And, um, you know, I had every thought that a husband and a father could have in that moment of what is my life all about? Am I fulfilled? Do I have purpose? Am I happy? Am I being a good father? Have I been a good father? Am I good? Every thought in a matter of minutes goes through your mind. And I'm just holding on to this hope that maybe if I get to the hospital fast enough, I can see her before she dies. And so I run through the airport, I get in the Uber, we rush to the hospital. I run past the reception desk in the emergency room. I go up two two floors and I remember walking in a room and um, the first thing I noticed was that the heart rate monitor was still beeping, which meant she had a heartbeat. And I felt this sense of sort of relief, like, great, at, at least I made it before she passed away. And I remember I sit by her bedside and I sit down, I ask her father, I say, I say, you know, Hey, how's she doing? And the moment that those words came out of my mouth, she had a scary episode, almost um, seizure like episode and the doctors and nurses had to come in and it was a really scary thing. And when they got her calm, I asked him, I said, has, has that happened before? And he said, that was the first sign of life that we've seen. And I remember, um, just feeling gratitude that I got this one more moment with her. And that one moment turned into one night, woke up the next day. She's, um, still alive. And then another night. And then on the third day, she's starting to come back to health. She's starting to communicate, become coherent. And I'm sitting at her bedside and I say, I said, Hey, do you remember what happened that day that I walked into the, into the room and, and, uh, you had that little episode. And she said, yeah, when I, um, she said, when I heard your voice, it gave me life. It's still hard to talk about. I've shared the story. Um, I probably shared this story 50 times now and it's still, it's still difficult. Um, but that sense of like, you know, we're truly a team. Like she was always there for me. And you know, I felt a lot of guilt because I just, I wasn't always there for her when she really needed me and, um, caused me a lot of grief and it caused me a lot of, uh, guilt. And, uh, the silver lining is she, she fought, she ended up making it. It was 30 pretty rough days, but, um, she made it through and today's very healthy and we're actually expecting our fourth again, sort of against all odds, uh, in September. So unbelievable. Tyler, thank you, um, for sharing that. I know that was not easy. Um, and I'm really happy that it, it has worked out. Um, but this, this experience, right, has really kind of changed you and what you're doing in your present day career. Um, giving you totally different perspective, right. Of what we go through as entrepreneurs and, and how you can help maybe center other entrepreneurs into what's really important. Maybe you can give us just a minute or two on that. Absolutely. I think there's a radical misconception in Startupville, which is if you're building a company, 
it's the only thing you eat and breathe and sleep and think about and pay attention to and prioritize. And it's bullshit. There's no other way to put it. It's, it's a lie. It's a trap. It doesn't have to be that way because I promise if you do that and you allow your relationships to go away, you never know when it's going to be your last day. could be your last day today. It could be your boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or parents or your daughter or your son. It could be any of their last day. And if you're not living your life that way and you're not figuring out how do I develop the deepest and most connected and meaningful relationships possible with the people that I love, nothing else actually matters. You know how many times I thought about money and work when I was trying to save my wife's life? Zero, not even one time. And it makes you realize chasing the next coin, having the next car, having the next money, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter that much. And so you can find balance. It is possible. I promise I'm doing it now. Okay. I'm helping lots of other founders figure out how to achieve balance. And actually when you have balance, I believe it, it creates a competitive advantage on founders that don't, because then when you're working, you're that much more focused. You're that much more energized. You're not thinking about and feeling guilt about how shitty of a person you are to your, your spouse or your kids or your boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, so to me, you have to have it. Uh, it's a competitive unlock. And so that's the message for those who are building in the thick of it. Tyler, I think this is one of maybe one of the first times I don't have anything to add, right? It was perfect. Um, I love that advice. Uh, hopefully people are, are listening and can take that to heart. Um, really thank you for being here. This is, there's so many good nuggets in there that I think all of us, I know I've learned, I know a lot of us are going to learn from really appreciate you, you sharing the whole story. Thank you. Thanks Todd. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for listening to the cashing out podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the cashing out podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember exitwise.com and the cashing out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.